Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the accumulating evidence that the January 6th coup attempt was planned at the highest level of the Trump administration, with, as Trump said to his acting attorney general, his Republicans in the House doing the rest to overturn the election. Joining us to discuss the history of insurrection in this country is Sean Wilentz, the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, whose books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, Bob Dylan in America, and The Politicians and the Egalitarians, and his latest, No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. We'll look into his essay in the journal Liberties, The Tyranny of the Minority from Calhoun to Trump, and assess the possibility that we already have a virtual secession of the red states determined to hold on to white power and privilege, and how, quote, the McConnell filibuster feeds the anti-government fervor skillfully exploited by the charlatan Trump, who claims that he alone can set things right. Above all, it solidifies the modern Republican strategy to secede where the slave power and the Jim Crow segregationists ultimately failed to bend the nation permanently to the will of a fiercely determined minority. Then we'll look into the explosive charges made by a former top Saudi intelligence official on CBS's 60 Minutes that the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, is, quote, a psychopath killer in the Middle East with infinite resources who poses a threat to his people, to the Americans, and to the planet. Dr. Ali Al-Yami, who is the founder and director of the Center for Democracy and Human Rights in Saudi Arabia, joins us. A native of Saudi Arabia, he has lived in the United States for many years, where he has advocated for political reforms in Saudi Arabia and provided testimony regarding human rights in Saudi Arabia before the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. Then finally, we'll speak with Henri Baki a professor of international relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean and intelligence and joins us to discuss how Turkey's President Erdogan, who has issued a warrant for Henri Baki's arrest, is trying to walk back his order to kick out ambassadors from 10 Western countries, which has backfired, hurting the already battered economy as Turkey's currency takes a hit. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. Joining us now is Sean Wilentz, who's the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University. He has taught there since 1979, and his books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974-2008, Bob Dylan in America, and Politicians and Egalitarians, and his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding, and he has an essay in the journal Liberties, The Tyranny of the Minority from Calhoun to Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sean Willens. Great to be here again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and as an historian, have we ever reached a point of such danger to our democracy that is exhibited by this comprehensive and multi-layered Republican assault on the vote itself in this country with gerrymandering, meaning they'll take the House before one vote is cast. On voting day, there'll be massive voter suppression around the country. And then after that, through Republican-controlled state legislatures, they'll be able to count Mm -hmm. and certify the vote. And if they don't like it, they can overturn it. And then 
mm-hmm. the precinct level, you've got Steve Bannon's operation underway where traditionally neutral poll workers are being harassed and resigning in droves and being replaced by mm-hmm. Republican partisans like the, the ninja crowd in uh, Arizona. This is all happening before mm-hmm. our eyes. I'm wondering whether mm-hmm. the Democrats are sleepwalking mm-hmm. into a route in 2022 and 2024. But that aside, mm-hmm. how do you see this current situation in the light of history? Well, the current situation is at once, um, well, it's the most alarming since um, 1860-61, since Southern Secession, in terms of the, the systematic attack on American democracy. Um, we've seen nothing like it since then. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's, it's actually worse because, you know, in 1860-61, the, the Confederates, the slaveholders, when they were so infuriated at Lincoln's election that they decided they were going to have no more of it, you know, they didn't try to overturn Lincoln's election. They didn't try to pervert the, the, the processes of democracy. They, they, they seceded. They said, we're out of here. We're, we're not going to do that. Well, that's not what is going on here. What's going on here is a systematic corruption of democracy from within. All done completely under the, they found the weakest points in the Constitution they could find. They found all the weak points in American democracy, which they could uh, turn to their own perverse uses and um, are in the process of establishing, as I, as I say in this piece that you so nicely mentioned, establishing a kind of permanent tyranny of the minority, which is you know, fundamentally at odds with what this country is all about. I think we're actually well on the way to seeing that occur. And um, I'm extremely alarmed, and I would hope that the rest of the country is extremely alarmed. Um, and I wish the Democratic Party was more <laughs> extremely alarmed than they seem to be about what's going on, although I suspect they understand what's going on, that they're incapable politically or what have you for, of, of taking a stance on it. But I think it's that serious, yes. Well, you're right that the secessionists committed treason by repudiating the Democratic Union, but the Trump Republicans right. committed something akin to treason by repudiating democracy itself, and that Republicans could make Correct. that minority rule more or less permanent without dissolving the Union right. or amending the Constitution or assaulting the Capitol. Right. The Republican Party will have That's replaced right. American democracy with minority despotism. And that Correct. is where we are at. And it is extraordinary, mm-hmm. the gap between the alarming reality and the passive nature of our political discourse in not yeah. recognizing this. Well, uh, I think I, I think there are attempts to do so. I mean, I think that, for example, um, what's going on in the House, inside the House, not inside the Justice Department, but inside the House regarding January 6th is an attempt to try and get at the nature of the, um, of the threat. But, you know, it's fighting the last battle, in effect. I mean, I, I'm all for it. And I think what, what, you know, Congressman Raskin and others are doing has to be done to expose the extent to which what happened on January 6th was indeed part of this continuing process that we're seeing playing itself out. But we're well beyond that now as well. Um, we're now at the point where things have been done that uh, are unlikely to be undone, um, which will, in effect, and more than in effect, which will basically throw the election in 2022. I'm not saying, you know, it's in effect, this is an act of great projection on their part. You know, Trump is always saying that the election was rigged, the election was rigged, and all the time while he's trying to rig the election. And that's essentially what they're doing. Um, But it's more than just rigging an election. It's changing the entire system around, putting it within, in the grasp of a very tightly knit, almost Bolshevik-like unified party under the direction of a very small group of people who are now going to, in effect, write the rules for American democracy or unwrite the rules of American democracy and put their people in in its place. That is what's going on. And on that, I agree. I mean, I think that, that, that the, the scope of this, the extent of it is by nowhere near, uh, is nowhere nearly as uh, present in people's minds as it ought to be. Well, the peculiar alliance, even though they hate each other, that you point out is, is with both McConnell and Trump being yeah. really the sort of twin <laughs> disasters here. Yeah. And you, you write yeah. that the current filibuster, which McConnell is all about the filibuster, of course, you say that 
By wrecking the legislative process, the McConnell filibuster in turn feeds the anti-government fervour skillfully exploited by the charlatan Trump, Mm -hmm. who claims that he alone can set things right. Above all, it solidifies the modern Republican strategy to succeed where the slave power and the Jim Crow segregationists ultimately failed to bend the nation permanently mm-hmm. to the will of a fiercely determined minority. So that mm-hmm. sort of says it all. Well, it's there. I mean, there are two, there are two trains running, is, is, in effect. I mean, there's, there's McConnell and Trump, and while they're hardly identical, um, they feed each other's purposes. Um, what's in it for McConnell is permanent Republican rule. What's in it for Trump is his own you know, kleptocratic, um, you know, gangster-like politics. Now, you know, the fact that, that, that Trump ended up taking over the Republican Party, um, as he did in 2016, when the Republican Party could not face the fact that it had created a base that it could no longer control. And when uh, Trump, in effect, commandeered that base, the only place for, for McConnell to go in order to sustain Republican power was to feed Donald Trump as much as he might despise Donald Trump. Donald Trump, in effect, took the party away from him and his friends. Nevertheless, He's enough of a realist, McConnell is, to understand, um, you know, what what the, what the situation was. He knew that going too far, opposing Trump by you know too much, was going to undo his entire project. Um, from Trump's standpoint, you know, the, as, as I said in the article as you just quoted, the more dysfunctional the government looks, the better for him. Um, the more that it looks as if the government can't get anything done, that it's only doing things for a narrow special, whatever, it, chaos. Political chaos and impasse feed Trump, and it also helps uh, McConnell. So they have a kind of, um, you know, they they are joined at the hip in effect in terms of what they want to get, you know, see get done. Um, on the one hand, this McConnell wants to do it for his Republican donors, which which is really what it's all about. It's all about money, and I think in McConnell's case and power, but money is the root of all that. And then Trump has his own, you know, grandiose ideas of what he wants to do. Um, they're joined at the hip at this point. And, um, you know, I, I don't see how you undo that. I mean, I think the idea that you were somehow going to separate the aspirations of Mitch McConnell and those of Donald Trump um, was foolish from the start. I mean, there was this thought that perhaps in the aftermath of January 6th, you'll remember that, you know, that McConnell gave this speech in which he, you know, blamed the president for what happened. Well, that was for a nanosecond, which was going to pass. And the idea of, of, dry, of, of, of trying to, you know, draw a wedge, drive a wedge between McConnell and Trump, I think, was, was, was foolish. And as you write, McConnell understands that the public generally holds the party in power responsible for dysfunction and inaction, which has That's right. made him the expert practitioner of the politics of sabotage. And that began also mm-hmm. not just with Biden, but going back to Obama on the very day of, Obama, right. of Obama's inauguration. McConnell met with Newt Gingrich mm-hmm. and others uh, to plot the downfall of the Obama mm-hmm. administration, which McConnell mm-hmm. openly stated uh, he wanted Obama to be a one-term president. And again, I'm speaking mm-hmm. with Sean Mullens, who's a George Henry Davis 1886 professor of American history at Princeton University. His books include The Age of Reagan, A History from 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, the Politicians and the Egalitarians, and his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery, The Nation's Founding, and he has an essay in the journal Liberties, The Tyranny of the Minority from Calhoun to Trump. Could you make the argument, though, Sean, and your article takes us back to before the secession with Calhoun, but through the whole secession Mm -hmm. and up to the present, but are we in a, a current secession? Is it really underway? in the sense that it's not a break with the southern states, you know, walking out of the Union, so much as the red states deciding, it's not kind of, it's unstated, but a, but a fact, that they don't want to live with the rest of us. They don't want to live with the urban mm-hmm. blue states. They can't deal with the rise of the minorities. They just want to seal themselves mm-hmm. off like Texas is doing and essentially mm-hmm. find ways to manipulate the situation to the point where they become the minority rule, the tyranny of the minority, and the mm-hmm. rest of us mm-hmm. are sort of, you know, second-class citizens. That seems to be yeah. underway. It's not stated. I mean, Mitt Romney, in an accidental recording, talked about the makers and takers, and I think that's the way mm-hmm. they see it. They see themselves as mm-hmm. the makers, the true Americans, the ones that have 
privilege and power which they want to hold on to, and the rest of us are mm -hmm. sort of parasites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit it. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why um, the seceders want to secede, but it is a kind of virtual secession. And it's a virtual secession, not just from the blue states. I mean, that's part of it. But what they're actually doing is seceding from American, you know, American government and American politics, normal American government, normal American politics in order to take it over. I mean, unlike the Confederates who, who try to establish a nation of their own, came up with their own pro-slavery version of the American Constitution, thought that they could set themselves up that way. And, you know, um, they came bloody close to doing it. But never mind about that. In this case, it's different. It's not about separating. It's about, in effect, seceding spiritually, seceding virtually. In other words, they have no respect whatsoever for the, um, um, the processes, the normal processes of American government, except insofar as they can take them over. And they're going to do so legitimately. They have no spiritual connection to us. They have no spiritual connection to the way that the government's supposed to operate. They're only going to be satisfied when they can take those institutions over, which they can do at the state level, and then basically have a minority, have their, have their confederacy, if you will, except they don't have to separate. They can basically have the confederacy become the country. The United States becomes the confederacy, if you will, because they're running everything. Before the Civil War, you know, for the better part of a decade, decade and a half at least, um, you know, Southern slaveholders were in command of the federal government for all types of purposes, you know, going right up to the courts and the Red Scott decision and so forth. They had every reason to believe that as long as they were there, as long as they had power, they could hold, as a minority, a small minority, they could hold the balance of power. But then, lo and behold, along comes Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party, and they can't do that anymore. Well, what I think that the the Trumpites and the Republicans are trying to do is establish what the uh, slaveholders thought that they had in the 1850s, that they don't have to um, change anything. They'll just be in control. I think they're trying to not just achieve that. I think they're trying to institutionalize that so that there will be no undoing of this minority rule. That's what I think is going on. But the secession is certainly there in the sense that they are, you know, you know withdrawing their allegiance to the American government as, as opposed to their allegiance to Trump. And here's where Trump becomes an important character in all of this, of course, because there's a cult-like character in all of this. So anything Trump says is right. Everything that everyone else says is wrong. And in that sense, the secession has led to the creation of this new nation, if you will, um, spiritually or virtually, that is behind Donald Trump. And that's something that the Republican Party couldn't do on its own, but the, that Trump has managed to help them do for themselves. So tell us a little about Calhoun and nullification and, and how that relates to yeah. the current situation. Yeah, I mean, back in the 1830s, um, it became clear to, to, to many, or at least many slaveholders thought, <clears throat> that um, the federal government was you know, not on their side. They were going to have to do everything they could to prevent the federal government from interfering with the institution of slavery. And uh, they came up with various issues around which they were going to circumscribe federal power in order to make sure that they, as a minority, would have the ultimate say over the institution of slavery, but, but other issues as well. In other words, they were trying to establish a kind of minority rule. Calhoun was in many ways, I mean, he's overrated, I think, intellectually, in my view, but nevertheless, he was the presiding genius of all of this stuff to try to find ways to make sure that the Southern slaveocracy was going to maintain power, even though it was in a minority. One solution was the idea of nullification, that the, um, the, the, the southern states, the individual states, could declare any federal law null and void within their borders. Right? So if you passed a tariff, for example, that they didn't like, they would be able to nullify that tariff. Um, that was one way to ensure that the federal government's you know, um, um, can, uh, power would be broken as far as the states were concerned, that they would be, as a minority, they would still have, be in power. That didn't work out so well, in part because President Andrew Jackson told Calhoun, sorry, uh, this is, we have a government here, not a league of states, and um, this is unconstitutional, and we're going to crush you. And in fact, they made Calhoun back off. But Calhoun kept coming up with other ways to try to invent you know, a, a kind of alternative constitutional order that would ensure that this, the, 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 the Southern slaveholders, even though a minority, would always have enough power to sustain themselves. Um, and indeed run the country if need be. And he came up with all kinds of crazy ideas, like having you know two presidents, one president from the North and one president from the South. All of these sort of cockamamie ideas got kind of nowhere 
They managed to hang on, however, for a variety of reasons until the Republican Party came along. But what you see in Calhoun, though, is, as I say, this, this concerted effort to try and defy the majoritarian basics of the American Constitution, which is indeed based on the idea that the national majority is sovereign in affairs that are national, right? And, and you know, that the national majority rules. He was trying to undo that as best he could. And he tried and he tried and he tried. And he failed, but in the end, in that failure, the Confederacy formed to say, okay, well, we can't do it our way, we're going to do it this way, we're going to secede. That's where we get to the Civil War. But my point in the piece is only that this idea of the tyranny of the minority, the idea of minority rule, it's nothing new. It's nothing that Mitch McConnell invented, nothing that Donald Trump invented. It's a, it's a theme in our history that goes all the way back. In some ways, it goes all the way back to the founding in 1787, but it really goes back to Calhoun. And uh, there's a kind of continuum in all of this. Well, that you write here, talking about a continuum, in 1995, for example, Justice Clarence Thomas, in a dissenting opinion, appeared to endorse, if not, if not nullification, then the compact theory on which nullification rests, yeah. writing with breathtaking Excellent. candor that, quote, the ultimate source of the Constitution's authority is the consent of the people of each individual state, not the consent of the undifferentiated people of the nation as a whole. And that's Clarence Thomas, who incidentally is a black man, and he is now, according to some analysts, really running the Supreme Court, not Justice Roberts, because he, along with Alito, are in compact with the uh, the Trump appointees who have tipped the, the mm -hmm, scales mm -hmm. now to the point of a 6-3 mm -hmm. conservative majority. So just in closing, though, Sean... Is there a problem, we, we've talked about it earlier in the fact that the Democrats don't see this freight train barreling down the tracks at them um, mm -hmm. of voter suppression and one-party rule. The table is now being set for one-party rule in the United States. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's no reason to assume that once they, the Republicans take over, they're going to give up power, their majority power. But mm -hmm. is there a problem in the sense that liberals have always defended minority rights, and that's now being mm -hmm. turned on its head, where the majority is mm -hmm. now under threat. Yeah. I mean, liberals are raised on the idea that, you know, that their entire um, um, you know, devotion ought to be to protect those who are weak, particularly those who are minorities. That's their primary focus. Um, but it comes a point where the minority is actually the people who oppress those minorities, as it were. They are uh, threatening to take over the uh, majoritarian rule. Uh, look, look, the cornerstone of any, any American democratic order is the idea of majority rule. Now, you have checks on that majority rule to ensure that minorities are not oppressed. That's what James Madison stood for. But there comes time, there, there, there are times that come when, in fact, um, you know, these minority interests want to take over the entire country and or take over the, the you know, the majority power to include the possibility of majoritarian rule. Right. It's not a check on majority power. It's the rejection of majority power. It's the rejection of the entire idea of majoritarian government. That's what's going on here. So it's not a check. It's a um, it's an obliteration. And unless the Democrats wake up to that, then our entire constitutional order is in danger. It's really that serious. Well, Sean Malentz, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Great to be here, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Sean Malentz, the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, Bob Dylan in America, the Politicians and the Egalitarians, and his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding, and he has an essay in the journal Liberties, The Tyranny of the Minority from Calhoun to Trump. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at the explosive charges made by a top Saudi intelligence official on 60 Minutes that the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is a psychopath killer in the Middle East with infinite resources who poses a threat to his people, the Americans, and the planet. Fremont told them when the war had first begun How to save the Union the way it should be won But old Kentucky swore so hard and A.B. had his fears Till every hope was lost but the colored volunteers McClellan went to Richmond with 200,000 braves 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Ali Al-Yami, who is the founder and director of the Center for Democracy and Human Rights in Saudi Arabia. A native of Saudi Arabia, has lived in the United States for many years, where he's advocated for political reforms in Saudi Arabia and provided testimony regarding human rights in Saudi Arabia before the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Ali Al-Yami. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And 60 Minutes, uh, CBS's 60 Minutes on Sunday night had an interview with the former number two in Saudi intelligence, Saad al-Jabri, who worked under Mohammed bin Nayef, who was, in fact, the crown prince until Donald Trump intervened and managed to get Mohammed bin Salman to jump ahead of his cousin as the crown prince. And now, of course, bin Nayef is uh, under house arrest and his fortune has been confiscated by MBS. But what al-Jabri said about the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is so alarming. He said he is a psychopath, a killer in the Middle East with infinite resources who poses threats to his people, to the Americans, and to the planet. Would you agree with that? I do, simply because we already know, uh, especially after the... uh he uh, dispatched 15 of assassins to murder uh, dismembered actually uh, Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey in 2018 but al-Jabri is a person who knows who knows the set mindset and practices of the ruling family because he is an insider as you said he was the second man in the interior ministry under Crown well, he was Crown Prince Mohammed bin Naif before he was demoted by his nephew, cousin actually, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS. So he knows. He knows them better than anybody else. He knows them. He knows their mindset. He knows what they do. He worked for them. They made him very rich. And he's very credible. If anybody's credible about giving us an assessment of not only of Ram, not of only of MBS, but any royal member or any king. He worked for them for 20 years. He was very highly respected within the royal family itself, kings and crown princes and everybody else, because he's dedicated, he's dedicated to the to the preservation of the ruling family. So in this respect, he's probably the most credible person to tell us what kind of people we are dealing with. Well, one of the things that he said that was so alarming is he said that Mohammed bin Nayef told him, al-Jabri, in a meeting that Nayef had with the crown prince, his cousin, who wasn't the crown prince at the time, obviously, MBS said to bin Nayef, I think this was in 2014, I want to assassinate King Abdullah. I get a poison ring from Russia. It's enough for me to just shake hands with him and he will be done. Now, the extraordinary thing about this is that Al-Jabri says he has this exchange on tape and that there are two copies of these tapes. Presumably, and I think he said also later in the interview, he said that if he's killed and he expects to be killed by these Saudi hit teams that MBS has sent to kill, as you mentioned, Shoji in Turkey. They also sent a hit team to Ottawa to kill Al-Jabri, and the Canadians intercepted them. So presumably Al-Jabri has this tape, and there's a second copy. So what are the chances of us seeing this tape? I mean, can something be done to stop MBS from becoming king, which is where he's poised to be? You know, the only the only people who could stop him from becoming king are his family, the royal family. Now, all the potential challenger to Prince Mohammed bin Salman ambitions to be king are all either under house arrest or in jail, real jail. So he had cleared the way for himself to become the next king. And only only his father or his brothers, because the the kingdom now is not is not anymore the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It is the kingdom of the Salman, of the Salman 
family. And that's King Salman and his sons because they all uh, hold very the top position, the top political, economic, security positions in the country. The defense ministry, the oil ministry, the the the, the treasury, the securities, the army, the air force, the, the navy. They they are all in charge of all the nation's domestic and foreign powers and policies. So only they can su- support him. And that may still happen, I don't know, but at this point, he cannot be stopped unless uh, foreign powers, whether it is us or, or others, only, only the European or the US could do it, is to give him an ultimatum. You are not gonna be a king, and if you are gonna be a king, you are gonna be uh, dealt with in uh, a less than uh, nice way. Other than that, he's gonna be the king. He has eliminated all potentials contender to the throne. So the problem also is, I understand, Dr. Al-Yami, is that he's very popular with Saudis under 30 years old, and that's the majority of the population because he's allowed them to go to the movies, the cinemas are opened up, allowed women to drive, and he's curbed the repressive religious police, the Mutawin. So he's very popular with young Saudis, but he's not popular with the old ruling class, the family. But as you point out, he's got most of the of his opponents in jail or under house arrest. So he's not going anywhere, right? And he looks like he doesn't obviously like Biden, and Biden doesn't like him. So do you think he's going to try and make a deal with the Iranians? What's going on on the foreign policy front there? Well, he's making a deal with the Iranians. There have been discussions between top Iranian officials and Saudi officials in Iraq for the last four or five months. You see, the Saudi ruling family, they only have one item in in their agenda. And that is their perpetual rule and ownership of the country. And whatever it takes, they will do. And the fact is that they started, they started, negotiating with Iran because Prince Mohammed bin Salman, when he became Crown Prince, said that he said it. This is documented fact. There can be no discussion. There can be no relationship with the Shiites because they are uh, heretics and they are waiting for the Mahdi to come and, and, and pave the way for the Shiites taking over all over the world. He had said that, but then in 2017 or 2019, actually, when, when the Saudi oil facilities were attacked, presumably, or at least that's what the Saudis and, and others said by Iran, and when their massive oil refinery, I mean, uh, facilities in Abqaiq, where I actually had my first job as a kid in Saudi Arabia, when it was attacked, uh, Trump, Trump told the Saudi royal family, you are on your own. We are, this is not attacking America, it's attacking Saudi Arabia. Immediately after that, Mohammed bin Salman turned around and said, Iran is a neighbor and we are seeking good relationship with them. And they have been in negotiation to compromise somehow about, as Obama said, sharing the neighborhood, which is not going to be easy, but uh, both the Iranian uh, theocracy and the Saudi autocracy, they have a lot of stake in maintaining each other in power so they can use them for domestic consumption, but also to blackmail foreign uh, governments and societies just like ours. So they are they are in the process of having some kind of coexistence in the Gulf area. But you have to understand that you mentioned that the, he is very popular among the Saudi young people. The Saudis, there is absolutely no way to measure the Saudi people's attitude toward their government because there are no freedom of expression. There is no media uh, freedom. There is no there is no measurement where you could measure the Saudi people themselves, whether young or old or religious or non-religious, measure their feelings toward their government. Of course, many young Saudis who are disconnected from the past and becoming very much part of the international community's uh, discussion via social media, they, at this point, at this point, 
they are still, as you mentioned, and others, and we know that for a fact ourselves, uh, that they, they like what he has done in terms of social relaxation, like movies and gender mingling and, and uh, curtailment of the religious police, uh, unlimited powers at one time. It's interesting also that people praising him for uh, reigning on the religious police, but he actually added, he added their portfolio to his. Now he is the man uh, you have to go through for anything, whether you are inside or uh, outside of the country, which is very clever on his part. Anything about you, about the Saudi government policies, whether economy, military, whatever, you have to go through Prince Mohammed. So he has a stronger hold of the total decision-making in the country. That doesn't mean the young Saudis or women or anybody are thrilled with him. In the contrary, in the contrary, the Saudi people are more scared today and terrorized under his watch than under any other of the uh, previous kings' watches in terms of the oppression. He's very, very, what, what, what Al-Jabri said is correct about him last night. He's dangerous to his people and his people know that. They know he's very dangerous to them. He's, he's a psychopath. He's a psychopath and he has no empathy. That's what Al-Jabri said. So let, let's just, just in the last couple of minutes then focus on, on what might happen here from the United States since the CIA apparently shut down this trial that the Saudis are trying to sue him, sue Al-Jabri, because of all the money he got. And obviously he got a lot of money from the royals and that's the massive slush funds that the royal family have shows you how much money they have. It's just breathtaking how much money they throw around. The Canadians, of course, have frozen Al-Jabri's money as well. But on the CBS 60 Minutes program where Al-Jabri described the Crown Prince as a, as a psychopath and he, how he had tried to assassinate the former king to put his father in line to the throne and he will eventually become king unless he stopped. And only, I don't know whether the Americans can stop him, but Mike Morell, former acting director of the CIA, was on the 60 Minutes program saying that Al-Jabri had done a lot for the United States. You recall the printer cartridges aboard planes heading for the United States that had bombs in them. Apparently, Al-Jabri was the one that tipped off the American intelligence to have those planes land and the bombs diffused. And there are several other incidents where he's helped the United States. If there's enough pressure from the United States, is it possible that they could stop this psychopath from becoming king of Saudi Arabia? Of course there is. You know, despite despite the fact that the uh, U.S. foreign policy now is focused in Asia, China and Russia and other issues, uh, the Middle East, or specifically the Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, will still be a major uh, domain for uh, the United States uh, military and, and businesses. The United States has tremendous amount of power, both militarily, economically, everything else, to stop him from becoming a king, whether that's going to happen or not. I doubt it. I doubt it. You see, the, the misconception in this country and among many people, uh, including human rights activists, many Saudis and non-Saudis, the U.S. and European allies have been in the Gulf state and the Middle East for for hundreds of years, colonialism and businesses and all of that, the objective of the strategists, Western strategists, is not to democratize or liberalize or humanize the Saudi system. It is to maintain the status quo. It is to maintain the status quo for this country's interest, financial interest, strategic interest, whatever interest there is. So they are not actually, we are not interested in this country, our foreign policy and our strategist or the European. We are not interested or want to see the status quo change. It works for them very well. So keep them in power. Every now and then say, we disapprove of your, your human rights violation. We disapprove of this. That is just like slipping the right, slapping the rest. It's not it doesn't make any difference. I wrote an article be, when, before even Biden was elected saying that nobody should expect any change under his administration. 
in terms of recalibrate the Saudi-American relationships or force the Saudis to do anything. If any change will be in rhetoric as opposed to substance, and I prove to be right, it is only rhetoric. It's not President Biden's confidant, Jake Sullivan, the top advisor in the national security, to meet with Prince Mohammed and his brother, Prince Defense Minister Khalid. Defense Minister Khalid, Prince Mohammed bin Salman and his full brother, is the one actually who lured Khashoggi to go to the Saudi consulate in Turkey, where he where he was dismembered. So it is rhetoric more than anything else. In terms of the substance, you are not going to see any change in the near future of Western support for the uh, Saudi system, which is uh, tragic because it's going to come back to haunt us, and it has already uh, did a lot of damage. My People ask me all the time, uh, will there be a change uh, under the Biden administration? I said, look, if 9-11 attacks and killing of 3,000 Americans did not wake our decision makers and businesses up, nothing else would. Well, Dr. Ali Al-Yami, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Ali Al-Yami, who's the founder and director of the Center for Democracy and Human Rights in Saudi Arabia, a native of Saudi Arabia who's lived in the United States for many years, where he's advocated for political reforms in Saudi Arabia and provided testimony regarding human rights in Saudi Arabia before the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with someone who Turkey's President Erdogan has issued an arrest warrant for as... Erdogan tries to walk back his orders to kick out ambassadors from 10 Western countries because the economy and the currency has taken a hit. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Henri Barkey, a professor of international relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and intelligence. And he's co-authored and authored and edited five books, among them Turkish Kurdish Question, Reluctant Neighbor, Turkey's Role in the Middle East, and most recently, European Response to Globalization's Resistance, Adaptation, and Alternatives. Welcome to Background Briefing, Henri Baki. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And in what appears to have been a somewhat impulsive speech that Turkish President Erdogan made on, I think it was on Saturday, to a crowd, he's obviously under tr- in trouble because the economy is crashing. And he came to power based upon the idea of a rising economy and that he was a a great steward and would improve the lives and welfare of the Turkish people. But the economy's turned against him because he's running something short of a kleptocracy. So was that the motive for him just to whip up nationalism, to say we're going to kick out the 10 ambassadors from the United States, Germany, France, Canada, Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway... Sweden, Denmark, and Finland, because they support freeing Osman Kavala, who Erdogan has imprisoned. Was it simply that his rhetoric got out ahead of himself? Yes, he's under a lot of pressure because opinion polls are showing that um, his party and and he himself would lose um, if there were elections today. Uh, this is this is really an unusual situation because he's always been ahead in polls. He's always managed to win elections with comfortable majority, and with the exception of the Istanbul and the Ankara municipalities, he hasn't lost much in the last last years. So he's under a lot of pressure, and not only that, there's a great deal of talk in Turkey about how poorly the economy is being run, how poorly Erdogan is doing, and he has run out of ammunition. 
But how, that said, I'm not necessarily sure that he decided um, to kick out the 10 ambassadors because it was a way to distract attention. I think that the, the let's tell you, your listeners, the 10 ambassadors delivered a letter to the foreign ministry about Osman Kavala. Osman Kavala has been now in jail for more than three years and um, he's a civil rights person who for many years has been working on all kinds of domestic initiatives, cultural, some political, but mostly cultural and and social. But Erdogan has something against him. It's very personal. And you could tell from the way he made the announcement about kicking out the 10 ambassadors, he went um, overboard with respect to Osman Kavala and accused him of all kinds of things, including being uh, George Soros's uh, office in Turkey, as if that that is a crime. I didn't know that was a crime. In, but also for your listeners, we should also tell your listeners that Osman is also being charged along with me for quote unquote trying to overthrow the Turkish government in 2016 when there was an attempted coup. This is another fiction that the government has created. And this is also a way to keep Osman in jail because um, they don't really have any evidence to keep him in jail. So by associating him with all kinds of other court cases, they think they can keep him in jail. But that's why I'm saying this is very, very, very personal for Erdogan for reasons that I don't think a lot of people know, maybe except for um, his family and people very close around him. He really has something against Osman Kavala. He seems to think that Osman Kavala was an instigator in probably the first public challenge against Erdogan that took place in 2013 when people demonstrated in Istanbul against the government attempt to take a green space in the middle of Istanbul and turn it into some kind of uh, construction site and maybe apartments, etc. Gezi Park. Gizzi Park, that's correct. That said, it's clear that Osman had nothing to do with it, but I think Erdogan is convinced that that's the case. And it's also very similar to what's happening with Selatin Demirtas. Selatin Demirtas has been in jail five years. Osman, I think, four years. That's right, Osman, four years. Demirtas, five. Demirtas is the former head of the Kurdish political party, the People's Democracy Party, and Erdogan doesn't forgive the fact that um, Demetash once said that he, he, if it was up to him, he would, Adon would not become pre- president. And, and Demetash was instrumental in Adon's party losing the municipalities in Istanbul and Ankara, which was a big blow. And that's why he's, they're in jail. I mean, it's, it's, the Turkish justice system doesn't exist anymore. The Turkish justice system essentially is what Adon wants. If Erdogan wants you to stay in prison, they'll figure out a way to keep you in prison. And again, I'm speaking with Henri Baki, Professor of International Relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean and intelligence, and is the author of Reluctant Neighbor, Turkey's Role in the Middle East, and most recently, European Response to Globalization, Resistance, Adaptation, and Alternatives. And you just mentioned that you also are on Erdogan's hit list. He's not focusing on you. You're obviously, you're not in jail. (laughs) You're here in the United States, uh, quite as much as he is on Osman Kavala. But the whole point of going after the, or trying to kick out the ambassadors of these 10 Western countries, uh, members of NATO, I might add, along with Turkey. Some of them. Some of them are, yeah. Well, actually, actually quite a few of them are. Is because the European Court of Human Rights ruled that Turkey should immediately release Osman Kavala, right? And that's the source of Erdogan's, what would I call it, snit or outburst or whatever it is, which he's now trying to walk back, or at least his minions are. Right. I mean, Erdogan is really under pressure from a number of different uh, sources. I mean, uh, Turkey agreed many, many years ago 
that when it was signing an agreement with the with the European Union, that the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights would supersede Turkish court decisions, and and Turkey was obliged to follow through on U- European Court of Human Rights decisions. The European Court of Human Rights many times has said that Osman Kavala's um, incarceration is wrong and he should be released, but Turkey has ignored it. So what happened was that the 10 ambassadors, including the United States, obviously, but the United States is not part of the of Europe, basically said that, you know, he should be released. And the Europeans have been saying for a while that Turkey is in violation of the of agreements. So he's... You know, Erdogan is is under pressure because Europeans can technically start uh, putting some some sanctions on Turkey. At the same time, Turkey, as you also mentioned, is economically in dire straits. And this decision or this announcement that he was was going to kick out ten ambassadors had an immediate impact this morning on the on Turk on the Turkish currency, and the Turkish currency plummeted uh, and now has recovered when. It's clear that maybe a deal is going to is going to be figured out so that the ambassadors are not kicked out and the lira has recovered a bit. But the lira has been under pressure in part because Erdogan has been pushing the central bank of Turkey to reduce interest rates at a time when Turkish inflation is um, is rampant. And in fact, last week this is exactly what the Turkish Central Bank did and shocked people by reducing um, interest rates by 200 basis points. So a lot of things are coming in at the same time and Erdogan clearly feels the pressure. And look, in some ways, I think Erdogan has been now in power since 2003, right, 18 years. And, And he's been... All these years, including the earlier years where he had not completely consolidated power, the truth is that Erdogan's edicts were all followed through in Turkey. He be- Erdogan has become the state, essentially. L'Etat-Semor, Louis XIV used to say. Um, and so he doesn't take well when he gets criticized, especially by foreigners. Right. There's so many people in Turkey today who are in jail because they were prosecuted for insulting the president. And that may have meant sending a tweet, right? Because Erdogan is really that cannot take criticisms anymore. And that's what happens when you have a populist authoritarian who's been in power this long and starts to believe his own infallibility. And how dare you criticize him? How dare you say something against him? So he took it He took it personally, and that's why in his speech he blurted out, without having checked with his bureaucracy and his foreign ministry, um, that all these 10 ambassadors would be kicked out. I mean, it was a shock, and it was what everybody talked about for the last uh, 48 hours in Turkey. Um, now he's, you know, he's... Um, going to walk back. But the fact of the matter is, everybody knows that he made a huge mistake and everybody knows that he is, he it's a mistake and he's had to um, basically walk back. So his credibility both at home and abroad has been really, really damaged. Um, And that's what he probably doesn't understand yet. Well, the fact of the matter is that if you insult the president, which, you know, during the Trump era, I could be charged with insulting the president daily because I was so appalled at uh, Donald Trump and his... But, uh, but you didn't go to jail, did you? The point being that there's a law, right, in Turkey you <laughs> that you can't insult the president, right? Right. So that's the difference. And presumably that's one of the laws that they would use against you if you were ever crazy enough to set foot in Turkey. Uh, but they already, they already have an arrest warrant for me, so they don't need the, I mean, they would arrest me immediately. Okay, so there is an arrest warrant out for you, right. But at its heart, is, the, is this clash between this populist president who's losing popularity because the economy's tanking because of his mismanagement and his kleptocracy? And in essence, you have an economy that's tied to Europe 
but a leader who's trying to stoke up sort of anti-European nationalism. He's obviously tried to take the country in a more Islamist direction, and his, his appeal is largely in the countryside, I take it, not in the cities. So that's, is that the clash between the sort of a reactionary form of populism and xenophobia versus the reality of an economy deeply integrated into the European economy? Well, it's an economy deeply integrated into European into European Union because Erdogan wanted it to happen. I mean, the first five, six, seven years of his of his rule were really all about improving the Turkish economy, opening the Turkish economy to Europe and to the rest of the world, encouraging uh, investments, encouraging Turkish exports to to Europe. Right? So it is, in a way, his own edifice that he's going after now, which is which is so. Um, so bizarre because Europe is what uh, really keeps Turkey uh, afoot because when you look at this, the 10 countries um, that were sanctions or what the Erdogan wanted to ambassadors kicked out, I think account for 70% of Turkish uh, trade, uh, Turkish exports. So what are you doing? I mean, why are you antagonizing those countries who are closest to you, at least economically, they may not be politically, but uh, but clearly they, they are economically. So I think it's really it's a question of a of a president who really has lost a sense of reality. And look, we usually see it with people who've been in power for a very very long time. I mean, uh, you start believing that. Uh, you are infallible because you've been in power so long. No matter what you do, you get reelected. But this time he may not get reelected, and that's what scares him, and that's why it gets him to react so uh, vehemently to to anything, to from a tweet to whatever the prime minister, the, the ambassadors say. Well, just in the last a couple of minutes, Henri. If he's on a losing streak here and he's been losing, his party's been losing in uh, the big city elections and is likely to lose, I think it's what, is it, is it 2023, the next election? Yes. If he's likely to lose in 2023, in the interim, is he going to resort to the kind of activity that Trump's GOP are resorting to now, massive voter suppression, so that well, they can I mean, there stay is... in power? Look, when the constitutional referendum occurred, there's some very uh, respected, respected um, statisticians who actually wrote and said that there was significant um, cheating going on on the part of the government to get the, the constitutional changes approved. So I have, and everybody in Turkey also expects that and everybody in Turkey expect that he will probably cheat uh, in um, and use his incumbency powers. That said, he, there are many other things he can do. He doesn't have to wait until 2023. He can call for elections uh, in a year or so. People, what people are really worried about is that he will launch a major military operations in Syria and use the, shall we say, the nationalist um, reaction to that, to call for elections and run on the basis of, look, I'm the one who defends Turkey, I'm the one who, who's strong, etc. I don't think it's going to work, but he may think that. We don't know. Well, Henri Barke, I thank you very much for joining us here thank today. You. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Henri Barke. He's a professor of international relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He serves as a member of the United States State Department policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and intelligence, and is the author of Reluctant Neighbor, Turkey's Role in the Middle East, and most recently, European Responses to Globalization, Resistance, Adaptation, and Alternatives. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappeared by half